Welcome to The Future Strategist with James Miller. Today, I again have on my show Greg Cochran, and we're going to talk about the prehistory of the Americas. Hello, Greg. Hello. So about 20 years ago, what would most educated people thought was the history of the Americas? Um, I would say, you know, with approximately that kind of time, maybe just a little bit earlier, that people talked about the first uh, American Indians, the earliest that, the, that they knew of at the time, that they generally thought were the first ones to come to America from Asia, was the Clovis culture, which was a widespread uh, archaeological culture. It means we find certain kinds of tools, certain kinds of evidence of their existence that was spread over a lot of North America. People were hunting big game, and this is perhaps 12,000 years ago, uh, and they this was well, there were still things like mammoths around, as well as more familiar animals. Uh, and it was named after a site in uh, near a small town in New Mexico, Clovis, New Mexico, uh, where somebody found uh, a skeleton of, I think it was a mammoth, and they found, uh, for example, uh, uh, you know, there was uh, a spearhead embedded in some rib or something. Uh, and they saw some, they found some tools as well. And since then, they found these in a number of places scattered over North America. Mm-hmm. It used to be that people thought these guys had gotten here first. Uh, and there's a particular sort of model for how they think they had gotten through there, which was like there was reason already to believe people had been in uh, Beringia, which is an area that, that contains some of Siberia, some of Alaska, but a lot of the region in between, which is water today, but was land when the sea level was so much lower because so much of the water was tied up in big glaciers. Okay, so an ice uh, age caused there to be a land bridge between Asia. Oh well, yeah, between a Asia very, and a States. very large one. Yeah, it was, it was a large area. Okay. Uh, and we already knew there had been people there, uh, and the idea was that at a certain point when. Uh, the glaciers retreated enough, and there was now an ice-free path, let's say, down into uh, western uh, parts of Canada, uh, uh, you know, say the prairie provinces. Uh, that's, they think, how people got there. And that opened up around that time, let's say. By how long before, ago was that? Perhaps 12, 13,000 years ago. Okay. But uh, – and, you know, I was saying comparing this to some of people's ideas about uh, uh, prehistory of Europe and so forth, you know, these ideas weren't precisely right, the ones about America, but they were far from incredibly wrong. It really was true that the great majority of American Indian ancestry came through uh, a path somewhat like this, only it looks like it was a somewhat earlier. Uh, so, uh, you know, the details were not right, but the general picture was was not wrong. Uh, so, uh, we now know, I mean, we now know a lot more. Some of it is from old fashioned. I, I hate to say old fashioned because it really, it really isn't that old, but I'm comparing it with the, uh, old fashioned archaeology compared with the new genetic archaeology, which is quite recent and can tell you enormous numbers of things. So there were several things that, uh, made people sort of think this picture had to change. One was, uh, there is a site down in Chile, uh, whose name I will eventually remember, that looked as if it was older. And, you know, and if people were already there in Chile, uh, Monteverde, okay, uh, eventually, for a long time, people wouldn't believe it was older than Clovis mm-hmm. because they were, 
had pretty strongly attached to the idea Clovis was, you know, the first people into the Americas. But at the, eventually got to the point where it's pretty clearly older than Clovis. Why couldn't also, people who, yes. who who did Clovis, why couldn't they have gotten here a lot earlier? Why didn't they think, well, this is just, we found a settlement of Clovis, but there's ones that are a lot older. We just haven't discovered them yet. Uh, well, that's kind of where people have adjusted to thinking now, but for a while they were reluctant, part, partly because, you see, there aren't many sites. Uh, maybe right now only this one, going back you know, quite significantly earlier than Clovis. There are some others which are controversial as to, as to dating and so forth. Uh, and also I think that probably there hasn't been as much exploration, as much archaeological work in South America as North America. Uh, any rate, uh, I, I, that is kind of where people got, but they resisted going there for a while. Uh, I mean, when you only have one or two places that claim to be much older, Often the simplest explanation is they're just wrong. Mm -hmm. That's that's not crazy thinking when you have only one example. Because typically, you know, certain examples are very strong evidence. These things tend tend to be not as like for example, if you found a piece of carved wood that was uh, very obviously a human artifact, and then you could carbon date it, and it said twenty thousand years old, you'd say, well, that's it. Or even better, if you found a human skeleton that was 20,000 years old, which, again, you could determine from carbon dating. Mm -hmm. But here they had evidence that was decent but not as strong as that. And a lot of people, partly because they were probably wedded to certain views already, were reluctant to think that this was correct. Uh, you know, you could say they, they didn't have perfect foresight, but, you know, who does? Okay. Uh, uh, but, you know, I don't think – there was a sort of a long-running controversy about how old is Monte Verde really. They finally brought down a bunch of North American archaeologists to uh, look at it uh, and, you know, and see very in detail what what all the claims and the evidence were, and most of them were convinced. Okay. But there are more things going on, some of which we have, you know, with these new methods of find, finding and studying ancient DNA, you can do more. Uh, oh. One one idea which was around a while was was there was more than one uh, migration into the New World. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one guy, who, there were a number of people who thought this, uh, uh, and most of that has been confirmed. Only we now know more details. But one of them was a linguist named Greenberg, who uh, he used his methods, which were usually rejected by other people in linguistics. He thought there were essentially three categories of American Indian languages. Mm -hmm. One was Eskimo and Aleut. Mm -hmm. The second was a group of languages they called non-Dene, which include a lot of languages in Western Canada and interior Alaska, but also include the Navajo down in the southwest around here. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was pretty clear to people that those Indian, the non-Dene it was a real group. It was, but uh, only I don't. Th and the other thing is, if you look at the Navajo, they look somewhat different from other Indians. Uh, I mean, so it wasn't a ridiculous idea. But the third category upset people because he said all the other Indian languages, you know, which is you know in large numbers in both North and South America, were mm -hmm. all part of a very old family. Uh, 
And there's a pretty fair chance he was right about that, but it was controversial because linguists usually said you can't confidently talk about relationships that are that old. Mm -hmm. uh, the methods he used weren't the same as a lot of other uh, methods that have been successful, for example, with Indo-European. Uh, and so few, not many linguists accepted Greenberg's work. However, genetically, those, those three groups are kind of three separate groups, which strongly suggests that his linguistic analysis was right. Maybe by coincidence, maybe, maybe he actually understood what was going on. Uh, but, uh, uh, so what it now looks like, uh, let's go backwards in time. Let's start with the most recent. It sure. looks like the Eskimos, uh, came to North America only a couple of thousand years ago. And that they, um, now they did mix with other groups that were more generally American Indian. And mm -hmm. they weren't incredibly different even in the part that came over from Siberia because American Indians are related to some groups in Siberia. Mm -hmm. But they brought a new technology that let them be pretty successful in the high Arctic, uh, hunting things like seals and sometimes mm -hmm. whales. And they spread very rapidly. And their spread, because it starts so late, a lot of it's in historic time. You know, they're moving east along the Arctic coast. After a while, they end up in Greenland. Mm -hmm. And the times they're ending up in Greenland is after the year 1000. There were already people in Greenland who were pretty rapidly replaced by the uh, current Eskimos. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it's, it's recent enough that the, those Eskimos have legends about fighting with these people. So said said they were big and strong, but ran away easily. Uh, but at any rate, uh, so we'll just take a step back in time. There was another later immigration, but not as recent as the Eskimos. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be the root of the Nadene. They and these guys probably brought the bow. Uh, the original American Indians who moved into North America did not have the bow. The bow. Is apparently fairly recent. There's a number of places it never got to. And in other places, it, it arrived later than you would think. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, at any rate, these guys were, again, somewhat specialized for maybe not so much coastal things, but, but Arctic things. And they lived in some places in Canada. And in fact, they colonized the northern coast of Canada and all the way to Greenland. And this mm -hmm. was several thousand years ago. Several means, I don't know, five. Okay. Something like that. And there, they, they used to call them, so they, some of them went into the parts of Western Canada and some subset of those eventually went on some really long wandering all the way to the American Southwest. Mm. Uh, and, but some of them lived along the coast of the Arctic regions and they're called the, uh, Paleo Eskimos. But it turns out, you know, the more recent Eskimos, some, sometimes called the Neo Eskimos, uh, pushed them to the side rather easily, partly because I think they had much better uh, hunting techniques. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they had kayaks. Did they only push them to the side in in cold regions, or did they push them? Well, uh, well, the uh, I think only along the coast. The Eskimos really only live along coasts. Mm -hmm. They're they 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 live off marine resources, and there had been a set of this. Uh, of these Nadeni peoples who apparently did that, but many others did not and lived on the, on the mainland of Alaska and Western Canada. Mm -hmm. So along the coast, they got pushed aside by the Eskimos with the last I looked, they 
apparently no mixing. So in a place like Greenland, the Eskimos that live there are apparently descended entire, you know, are, they're similar to other Eskimos, but they're not, they do, they don't have a mix from the previous inhabitants, which probably means they killed every single one of them. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, but as, as I said, uh, no, again, these people also mixed with the previous uh, American Indian groups, which uh, you know were adjacent to these regions. So the Nadeni are not purely this group from uh, Siberia, but they are to some extent, and their language is from there. And the same, uh, uh, and the same, the Eskimos came from a, a more recent uh, movement from Siberia, but they too have mixed heavily with the previously existing American Indian peoples. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things about the Navajo is there is apparently now a successful analysis using um, conventional linguistic methods, the sort of methods that were used to um, understand the Indo-European family, which link, links uh, uh, the non-denning languages to a particular uh, small group that still exists in Siberia called the Ket. Uh. They live – they live along, I forget, one of the large rivers in northern Siberia. They used to have a much wider uh, range of inhabitants, but used to, used to cover a lot more area, but now there's not many of them left. Uh, but there are still some, there's still a couple of thousand who speak this this language, and they're pretty clear that it is related to Navajo. That is actually the first time that people have fairly confidently related an American Indian language to uh, a language in the old world. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think people generally think it's likely to be true, and they also think of it as, uh, you know, it uses methods they they feel comfortable with. Uh, so, uh, but okay. most places, you know, because populations have moved around and different groups have replaced each other, you know, there aren't many places in a, in, in Siberia where people speak you know, lang the languages that probably, you know, people that were the, you know, related to the ancestors of, of the Navajo language, mm -hmm. uh, they were largely replaced by other people, which is, you know, a recurrent thing. By the way, this is recurrent in the old world, but it's not as true in the new world. Uh, like, you know, the first, or almost the first, uh, the big settlement seems mm -hmm. to have been about 15,000 years ago, which is older than the uh, Clovis culture, but mm -hmm. not enormously older, you know, perhaps 3,000 years older. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have now some evidence for We have some skeletons that are go back 12 or 13,000 years. Some go back a little further for ones that were actually in uh, parts of Alaska, which parts of Alaska was effectively part of this region we call Beringia. One of the things that limited it is there were large glaciers to the south, as I mentioned, and mm -hmm. that's apparently why people didn't immediately go uh, into the rest of you know uh, of of the Americas. They were trapped for a while. Mm -hmm. It now looks as if instead of instead of waiting until this valley between the glaciers showed up, a valley that would be in places like Alberta mm -hmm. or Saskatchewan, uh, there was an earlier phase in which the glaciers retreated from some areas along the west coast to places like British Columbia and Washington and so forth. Mm -hmm. And and it looks like people took that route first okay. as opposed to the uh, the ice-free corridor that people used to talk a lot about. It seems that they there were regions exposed, places where you could make a living fishing perhaps, and 
people sort of hopped down the coast of Western Canada. And this was a little earlier, maybe 16,000 years ago. And then once they got past that, they started expanding into uh, North and eventually South America. The, it was a different place back then, uh, not just because the glaciers were just starting to retreat, but it was full of of megafauna, big wildlife, mm -hmm. things that don't exist anymore. Some of them quite dramatic. There were mammoths. There were mm -hmm. mastodons. There were lots of large and super dangerous predators. There was something similar to the African lion, but about a quarter bigger. Mm. There was there were saber-toothed tigers. There were uh, uh, giant ground sloths with the weight of a modern elephant. Did lots? It was a different place than today. You think it was a lot more dangerous? Did did the people have the tools to fight these animals and to kill them? They did it somehow. I mean, we know something about their tools. They didn't have the bow, but they did have something called the atlatl, which is a, a spear thrower. It's something you you hold this little device and you catch uh, the end of the spear in it, and it gives it effectively your arm is longer. You have a, a, a greater lever arm. You can throw this thing and put it through a garage door ninety feet away if you're good at this. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and th that's probably the the toughest weapon they had. And it, you know, it, uh, were the animals dangerous? I said, well, some of them must have been, but you have sort of a mix of pro of situations. Like like a lot of animals, you know, like none of these animals, as far as we know, had seen humans before. Mm -hmm. And w and we know examples of that sometimes when people will visit animals on a on an island that right. hasn't been settled. Those animals tend to not be afraid of people. Uh, I mean, for example, there are, are cases where you have some sort of bird that nests on an oceanic island. Sometimes sailors would land there and just walk up and hit it with a club because they wouldn't walk away. They weren't afraid. They they had no they had no un, they had no innate understanding of humans or what kind of threat they were. Mm -hmm. uh, but but another but this could work another way too. I mean. There are a lot of animals in Africa that can be dangerous, but usually aren't because they avoid people. Right. Elephants, for example, often avoid people. Uh, uh, many predators avoid people. And when, when you do have a predator that becomes a man-eater, at least some of the time, it's because, uh, you know, it's crippled or something. Part of it is that, uh, you know, attacking humans, you know, an individual human who's like asleep – may not be very dangerous, but if you irritate them, you can have a whole lot of people come after you, and it can be, it's dangerous. To, to, so to evolution would, would favor creatures that were a bit afraid of humans. Well, that had some way of dealing with them. I mean, there's some African animals that are, actually their first reaction is to be aggressive and either get you or chase you away. And there are other animals that hide, but the point is, they all probably have had some chance to adapt to humans since humans did most of their evolution in Africa. Yeah. There are a number of large animals that disappeared from Africa, but for most cases, humans' capabilities were growing slowly enough mm -hmm. that those animals had a chance to adapt to it one way or another. Now, here, we, in the case of North America, you have American Indians show up. They are already practiced hunters. They've been hunting in Beringia. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know they're tough. You know they're tougher than people were in Africa a million years ago, and they're running in animals that have no adaptations at all to humans. So you know probably some of the large animals, like like one of the simplest things is 
Uh, large turtles always do poorly when people show up because most carnivores can't get through the shell, but we can, if nothing else, by, you know, picking up a 50-pound rock and cracking the shell. Yeah. Okay. So there were, if you know, large uh, turtles, you know, uh, sort of similar to the ones that still exist in the Galapagos today. There were turtles in the American Southwest, but not for long. Mm-hmm. Not after people showed up. And lots of big animals disappeared. But I was saying the other thing is it may have been more dangerous in some ways because the carnivores weren't afraid of us either, which actually, you know, lions and tigers being afraid of you makes it safer if you're in country where such things exist. If they're not afraid of you, yeah. you know, so uh, in, in some ways uh, the Americas were a happy hunting ground with tremendous amounts of game. Uh, game that was not, you know, if it's if it's a herbivore, you probably only had to worry if you made it mad if, and if it was really big, because you know an elephant can kill you even if they don't go out of their way to do it. Yeah. Uh, the same must have been true of things like mastodons, but a group of people who know what they're doing can kill these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, people have been there were whole cultures that hunted mammoths in uh, in places in in Asia, mm-hmm. and there's certainly people who hunt them today in Africa. Mm-hmm. So it's possible. Uh, but it may have also been not only may have been a, a very good place to move in terms of resources, but it may have also been kind of dangerous in terms of local animals that didn't know any better than to just kill you. Mm-hmm. You know, they maybe didn't have any caution about humans, at least at first. So the big predators, which would have been the saber tooths, mm-hmm. the uh, scimitar cats, the uh, African, uh, you know, something which is closely related to the African lion, only bigger. Uh, the uh, there was a a type of bear now extinct that was considerably taller, you know, at the shoulder than a grizzly, and apparently could run fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, life would have been interesting. I think you know once you learned how to how to deal with these things, it was probably a very easy place to make a living. And the pathogen but, load must have been very low, right? Probably so. I mean, not. I mean, there weren't – not only were there weren't any humans, there weren't any great apes or anything. Like some some of the serious human diseases have been picked up from chimpanzees or gorillas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was nothing like that in the New World. Nothing as close mm-hmm. uh, such that you know it would be easy for the germ to jump to humans. And the other thing is probably people didn't bring too many diseases with them because they had to go through a period living in Siberia and then Beringia, mm-hmm. cold areas. So, for example, if you had a disease carried by mosquitoes, there's there's a pretty good chance it didn't it didn't make it. Mm-hmm. So, like, we're pretty sure uh, there are at least a few bugs we know made it to North America mm-hmm. before Columbus, but there aren't very many. Mm-hmm. Now, there may have been a few regional, you know, things that you caught from some animal in North America, but again, we don't know of any very serious problems along this line. There are a couple. But there's nothing that compares with some of the really big diseases of Eurasia. Nothing in the same cat seriousness level as, uh, say, malaria or smallpox mm-hmm. seems to have existed. Uh, and you know, and so one thing that happened is there was a uh, these large animals became extinct rather rapidly shortly after people showed up south of the glaciers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a similar pattern in other places, uh, such as uh, New Zealand where the moas were, became extinct pretty rapidly, such as uh, uh, Madagascar. There were large flightless birds, sort of like uh, an ostrich, but much more heavily built. 
mm-hmm. uh, the heaviest bird in the world. Uh, there were many strange things on Madagascar. There were uh, 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 dwarf uh, hippos. There were there were lemur. There was a lemur the size of a gorilla, mm-hmm. uh, but not for long. People ate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, and the same is true on many smaller islands. Uh, and the same, similar things happen in Australia. Australia used to have a lot of megafauna, mm-hmm. uh, not as much as North America, but, you know, substantial amount. There was a 12 foot tall kangaroo. Mm-hmm. There was something related to a wombat that was the size of a hippo, the diprotodon. Mm-hmm. There were a number of things. Uh, there was a flightless bird whose ancestry is related to ducks that weighed about 600 pounds. There was a, uh, there was a lizard related to the Komodo dragon, but about three times bigger mm-hmm. that lives in Australia, all gone after a while. Uh, there is, there's still controversy about the causes of this, but to my mind, the controversies are foolish. I mean, because the, I think the answer is fairly obvious. People did it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, also remember, these are not all at exactly the same time. People landed in Australia, say, something like 50 or 60,000 years ago. People showed up in America 15,000 years ago. People showed up in New Zealand, say, 700 years ago. Mm. And sometimes, like people said, well, the weather changed. I said, it's funny how the weather always changes right after people show up. Uh, I don't believe it. Uh, And... why people are resistant to the idea that humans are the cause, I don't really understand. Uh, well, but they want to say that are. the natives were good conservationists, probably that we should learn from. Yeah. yeah. Well, they could. They while well, they're at it, you know, I'm sure they could say a lot of other ridiculous things. Yeah. But you know, the things that survived were things, uh, basically that reproduce more rapidly. Uh, and in many cases were smaller, so they weren't worth chasing as hard, and they were also harder to wipe out because they reproduce more rapidly. You know, like uh, uh, you know, things like elephants reproduce kind of slowly. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, an elephant pregnancy takes almost two years. It takes a, it's hard for elephants. You know, they they can't grow their population the way that rabbits can. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and we actually have a lot of evidence about North America. That uh, well, like for example, there's a kind of fungus that tends to grow in huge piles of poop from large animals, mm-hmm. large herbivores, and we have found certain lake beds where you can drill down and see what things were like at different times by looking at different layers of the deposit on the bottom. This is you know, like there's one in Indiana that people have used, mm-hmm. and uh, this particular uh, this particular the spores, this particular fungus. Suddenly they start rapidly diminishing and then they're gone over a period of like a thousand years. Yeah. It looks like it didn't take all that long for people to wipe out the large animals of North America. Now, you know, humans don't always do this. It depends on how good they are at hunting. Uh, for example, Neanderthals in Europe don't appear like if they either wiped out nothing or not much because I don't think we know of a single example of anything. It looks as if they wiped out. Now, later humans did, but not – so it, it may depend, you know, how advanced your hunting skills are. Mm-hmm. I mean, probably the most likely case, I mean, is a case where you suddenly show up, you have very – you're very tough, you're excellent hunters, and the animals have never seen humans before. 
that's probably the, the case in which the animals are most likely to get wiped out. And even then, it's typically the, the largest ones, the ones that reproduce slowly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's another category, which was there were a few animals that depended upon uh, having those larger animals around. For example, uh, you know, the California condor's not doing very well. Mm-hmm. It probably did better in the Ice Age. We know that it, its range was much larger. It's probably just barely able to survive in a world without elephants and mammoths and mastodons. And, you know, it does, there aren't enough large creatures that would be its natural food as a, as a scavenger. Oh. There were some other birds that were larger than the mm-hmm. California condor, uh, several species called teratorns, which were some of the largest birds known. And they all went extinct at the same time, too. So, it's mostly just the large animals, but there's a few other things that depended on those large animals, mm-hmm. and they disappeared as well. Uh, in fact, there's a third category of plants that depended upon those large animals, and some of them went extinct, and others have almost went extinct. So there's a, a number of plants that appear to have had – you see, they typically have large seeds mm-hmm. with something that's sort of edible, although not necessarily tasty on the outside – and it's some of these plants and trees, they spread their seeds by, as far as we can tell, by some large animal eating them, and then the seed pops out in a pile of poop. <laughs> and we know that there are cases there there are plants like this in Africa that depend on elephants to spread the seeds. Mm, yeah. Okay, like and we know plants that they typically you find them as kind of remnants. They're barely still here. Mm-hmm. Right? And maybe there's a, a small region which they can still manage. Uh, to spread uh, by some secondary method, or some of them, you know, have will grow runners and things, and you can get plants grow vegetatively mm-hmm. from it. Uh, but like one, you've there are several in North America plants that almost went extinct, and it looks as if they depended upon these large animals to spread their seeds, and they almost disappeared. Uh, but one of them you will have heard of, which is suspected to be in this category, is the avocado. Yeah, it's got a big seed. Uh, we don't know of any animal living today in Central South America that can actually swallow that seed. Mm-hmm. But there used to be some that could. So, uh, so anyhow, so the first, and this must have been a very interesting time. You know, you're running into a whole new world, you know, with much more wildlife, wildlife that sort of varies between, you know, casually dangerous and not afraid of you to not afraid of you and easy to hunt. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so these people spread pretty rapidly. Uh, by the way, there's one other thing that probably happened in the beginning that actually made it harder for for these large species to survive. You see, today uh, sometimes the place you'll see the most wildlife is in sort of a no man's land between hostile tribes. Right. Uh, for example, there used to be a lot of rabbits that lived along the Berlin Wall. Because mm-hmm. humans can't go hunt them. Yeah. Not be, well, the mines make it inadvisable, <laughs> and the East German guards with who will shoot at you, who would shoot at you if you got too close. Yeah. But the DMZ is like that in Korea. There's all kinds of wildlife. There's even rumors of a few tigers, <laughs> uh, which generally you don't find in Korea because it's too populated. Yeah. Uh, but uh, and people have noticed this, like in the Lewis and Clark expedition. You would go from certain areas where there's almost no game, then you find other places where there was huge amounts of game, and those were in between hostile tribes. People are afraid to go out in that region because yeah, you run into one of your enemies. Oh yeah, 
Uh, but in the very beginning, with some of the first, when people had first started moving into North America, they may not have split into tribes yet. If you start out with one group, they're probably all speaking the same language. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while for those languages to drift apart. Mm-hmm. So for a while, uh, these large animals may have faced humans with a, you know, pre-Babel humans. <laughs> humans, I mean, locally. Right. Uh, right. I mean, that means there are no seams in the landscape where you can hide. Yeah. Although people uh, probably can fall out pretty quickly among each other. Well, but it, since it only took a thousand years to do some of this wiping out, you know, it can take longer than that sometimes for languages to diverge, at least to the, I mean, I'm not saying that it couldn't be, but I think this probably played part of it. It, it made it harder for things to survive, the humans. Oh, also, for example, when we look at the Clovis culture, huge area, all the tools look the same. See, when people are in separate tribes, they make tools look different. Even they don't really have to be. They're, it's it's part of the as an identification thing. Like yeah. you know, if I find an arrowhead, I can tell. Oh, maybe I need to get out of here. That's not one of ours. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you know, like you found a, a you you find you know a German rifle lying somewhere and said, there must have been Germans around here recently. Maybe I need to. Anyhow, people deliberately used. They would, you know, not necessarily functional differences, but decorative differences in many cases. Mm-hmm. So, but, but if the, there was an early period in which these don't really show up over very wide regions of North America. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that, that could be a factor too. At any rate, so at first it was, you know, a place that had both North and South America had more big game than Africa does today. More big game than Africa did 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. More different things. Uh, some of which had died out in other parts of the world. I, th- I don't think there were still saber-tooths in Europe. Mm-hmm. Saber-tooths originated somewhere in Eurasia, but they were still here uh, even after they'd gone, gone away in, uh, in, in Asia and mm-hmm. Europe. Uh, and there were other things, kind of obsolete things, like there were early versions of elephants called gomphotheres that you would find in South America. Uh, you know, I don't think there are any mastodons still in Europe, but there were in America. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, any rate, so, you know, if you were a hunter, it would have been wonderful. Or if you were just trying to make a living. Uh, like I have little doubt that these populations, in fact, I have little doubt because I cheat because we actually have evidence. You can look at uh, some of the, uh, you can do some analysis of things, particularly if they mutate fairly rapidly. You could estimate at different times what the population size was. And the evidence we have is that it was growing very rapidly. The first, at the beginning, the number of Indians who got past the ice might only have been a few hundred. Mm-hmm. But then their population, they had a huge land full of game. Their populations seemed to have grown quite rapidly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, eventually moving down to South America as well. Uh, I mean, eventually wasn't a real long time. Probably they were probably getting down into South America as well within a thousand years. Uh, expansion can be faster than you think when there's nobody in front of you. Yeah. What what really makes travel hard in the old days was you'd go into some territory and you run into somebody who was either an enemy or didn't know what to make of you. It was hard to go through that sort of territory. You'd probably get killed. Yeah, you'd want to be cautious. But if you knew there was no one to your south, then you could. Go on long journeys. Well, that's that's a reason to move south all by itself. Yeah. I mean, if you if you're having something as simple as an argument with your mother-in-law, you could say, oh, let's just move south." Yeah. Uh, I, although, again, it took 
changes. It took adjustments because the climate was changing. Uh, and I'm sure that the sort of animals that were available to hunt were different. But, uh, you know, like one of the interesting things about this is when you look at languages in the New World today, I mentioned the Nadeni, but that's, you know, one group out of many. Uh, you, you don't see huge areas of full of people speaking closely related languages. In the old world, you do. Mm-hmm. So in Africa, most of sub-Saharan Africa is occupied by people speaking Bantu languages that are reasonably close and clearly all have a common ancestor, mm-hmm. not incredibly long ago. Uh, if you look at the uh, Semitic and related languages, the Afro-Asiatic languages, mm-hmm. most of the Middle East, uh, a lot of northeastern Africa, all of North Africa, they're all speaking language. I mean, even if not counting recent things like the spread of Arabic, they were already speaking related languages. Uh, then there's the Indo-European languages, you know, a big area of related languages, all of Europe, most of India. Mm-hmm. Those are all the products of fairly recent expansions. If they were old expansions, people end up getting so different, you can hardly tell they're related, mm-hmm. given enough time. But America, mostly, you see, a, you see a few medium-sized expansions, but you don't see these things that you know cover a whole continent usually. Uh, so, is, so there wasn't the equivalent of a Genghis Khan that you know five thousand years ago took over all of North America. Right. There was nothing like, or it, uh, maybe part of it is because people. Uh, you, by the way, there had one of the other pieces of wildlife in North America was horses. Horses mm-hmm. actually originated in North America, but they got wiped out. Oh gosh. So nobody domestic. Well, they probably ate them. I mean, yeah. there's all sorts of things that you could say later. Boy, I wish we hadn't done that. Uh, yeah. I mean, for example, if we had moas today, you could go to, you know, you should go to a restaurant and offer, you know, and, and order uh, an omelet that was, you know, a gallon <laughs> uh, if you wanted to. Uh, but, uh, you know, during, you know, agriculture hadn't been invented at this time. Nobody was thinking about it. It's kind of luck, luck what survives until later. Yeah. Uh, but the other thing is there are things that could have been domesticated later by the American Indians, and they just weren't. Why? I mean, they domesticated a few things, not many. They had dogs. They brought dogs with them. Mm-hmm. Dogs had already been domesticated. Mm-hmm. And later they bred specific uh, subtypes of dogs, specific breeds mm-hmm. for different purposes. They uh, they domesticated a few small animals. They domesticated turkeys. Mm-hmm. They domesticated uh, guinea pigs. Uh, but there's no large uh, – the largest animal they uh, – you know, llamas. Llamas mm-hmm. are the closest – and llamas are useful for both their uh, – uh, you know, for making uh, cloth, but also mm-hmm. for carrying things. But they're not real useful because a llama can only carry about 50 pounds. It's too small for anybody but a kid to ride. Mm-hmm. And – Although they are hardy and can, st- you know, they're useful up in the mountains of South America. They, you know, like a mule, you know, a llama can carry 50 pounds. A mule can carry, or let's say a donkey. A donkey can carry 400 pounds. It's a lot more useful. Uh, and again, you know, uh, the, the set of things that the American Indians domesticated, uh, oh, by the way, you know, they, they, de- they developed a lot of very important plant domesticates. Mm-hmm. You know, though, uh, some of the most productive in the world, things like potatoes, things like maize, mm-hmm. uh, other things, pumpkins, chocolate, uh, 
lots of lots of things that are widely used today. Uh, they domesticated some varieties of cotton that also happened in the old world with different species of cotton. But most cotton today is descend that is people raise is descended from New World variants. Mm-hmm. Uh, all all sorts of of, of of very very useful uh, 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 plant domesticates, uh, but not many animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why? I mean, I don't think we know. I mean, people said, well, nobody could have domesticated the bison. I said, well, the the wild ancestor of the cow is just about as big as a bison and has longer horns. And since it existed until fairly recently, there's records of it. We know it was very aggressive. Why mm-hmm. did how did people ever domesticate the aurochs? And I said, I don't know. It sounds tough. I mean, I said, would is it impossible to domesticate the uh, buffalo? I said, probably it's kind of comparable, but nobody did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or could you domesticate some kinds of deer? I said, maybe, but nobody did. We don't know why. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jared Diamond would talk about, well, none of these things were suitable to domestication. And I said, there's lots of the things that were domesticated from every piece of evidence were unsuited to domestication, but people did it anyhow. Well, the uh, population of Eurasia was a lot bigger, right, than the population of North well, and South what, America. Uh, well, after a while, I mean, it's one, one thing is things started a bit earlier in the old world because, you know, American Indians, for example, only got there somewhat more recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, whereas humans of modern humans have lived in Africa for hundreds of thousands of years, anatomically modern humans, mm-hmm. and they've lived in Eurasia for at least 60 or 70. You know, they have had more time to do this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the Americas, after they developed uh, uh, various uh, crops, uh, they started building civilizations which are in many ways very analogous to ones in the old world. Uh, the stages they go through, are, they're not exactly the same, and probably one of the biggest differences is the differences that flow from not having cattle and horses. Mm-hmm. But a lot of ways, there's a lot of similarity, except they were behind. Uh, like at the time that the, uh, the, Spat- the Spanish discovered America, you, would, you could probably com- compare the technological level, which is as good a way as anything, uh, of the most advanced American Indian civilizations, which would be like the Maya, the Aztec, the Inca in South America. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like uh, uh, civilizations in the Middle East of about 4,000 or 5,000 years ago, like the Akkadians or the Old Kingdom in Egypt. Mm-hmm. You know, they both built pyramids. They both had big temples. They both, uh, you know, had a lot of people farming and a few people running the show on top. They did trade, but uh, uh, they both of them were doing some metallurgy at the time. I'm talking about they were probably, you know, they and the American Indians were both mainly using copper. They the American Indians also did some clever things with silver and gold, but that was almost entirely for ornamentation. Mm-hmm. They were. Some things that they were just starting to do or had not gotten very far with. Uh, the Incas were making certain kinds of bronze, which it could be very useful, but they, but it hadn't spread to middle, to, uh, Central America yet. And they were, they hadn't used it for very long when, mm-hmm. when the Spanish, maybe for 150 years when the Spanish uh, showed up. Uh, n- nobody was using, uh, nobody was smelting iron yet. Mm-hmm. Nobody had to, uh, uh, in Central America, they weren't even using bronze, copper, gold, silver. Uh, the Maya had a real uh, written 
language. Other people did not, not quite anyhow. Uh, maybe pictograms that could convey some information, but you know, a real written language. Somebody who doesn't know the story, but who knows the writing system, can go read it and repeat exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Maya had that. Apparently, nobody else did quite, other than you know, maybe a couple of small groups close to the Maya. So it's like, it's like uh, you can think of the. Uh, Spanish, for example, is invaders from the future. Yeah. Uh, uh, unfortunately, their most potent thing was bringing in all kinds of diseases, which again the Indians did not have many of for a number of reasons, and and because they'd spent fifteen thousand years not being exposed to them, they were very very vulnerable to them. Uh, it now looks as if the Indian population, by the way, it wasn't so low, like say the day before Columbus, mm-hmm. because. You can you can actually raise more calories per acre with corn than with with wheat. Uh, Why is and, that? Oh well, there's actually an interesting reason. Uh, uh, the world, t- on the whole, has less carbon dioxide than it did, let's say, 10 million years ago. Mm-hmm. That's partly connected with why we've had ice ages. Uh, the world was warmer and had more carbon dioxide back in the Miocene, and a lot of plants are actually adapted to a higher level of carbon dioxide than we actually have. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but some plants have adjusted to this carbon dioxide short world, and what they do is they kind of cram in extra carbon dioxide to the photosynthesis reaction. Mm-hmm. And what the, These are called, uh, like most plants are probably what they call C3 plants. It has to do with how many carbon atoms are involved in photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some plants are called C4 plants. They have a different... Uh, they go through a different steps of the photosynthesis. And a C3 plant, there's a certain maximum amount of light. If you get more than that, it doesn't do the plant any good. So if you were growing wheat in England, uh, wheat is a C3 plant. Mm-hmm. England usually, you know, partly because it's so far north, it tends not to get sunlight that is as intense as it is near the equator. Right. Okay. But let's suppose you were growing somewhere like in the American Midwest, which is much farther south than England, or in Texas or in Central America. Corn is a C4 plant. What this means ultimately is, again, with a lot of help and fertilizer, I'm going to use modern numbers, you could get 300 bushels of corn in an acre, and you might get 60 of wheat. Well, that's a huge difference. Oh, yeah. Uh, Now, there's a couple of... Uh, it's not a pure game. Wheat has a better protein mix. Mm-hmm. If you eat only corn, you tend to get some vitamin deficiencies and things, but if you eat the right other things, you can make up for it. Anyhow, corn was very productive. Another Indian crop, very productive. Uh, potatoes. Mm-hmm. I mean, potatoes you know, were so productive that everybody in Ireland – Switch to growing potatoes. Yeah, that didn't work grow, out too well eventually. Well, it turns out when you depend not just all on one one crop, but one crop that is essentially clonal, uh, because yeah. you know the way you spread them is you you t- you don't typically use potato seeds. You you're you're taking cutting little pieces, so it's all the same exact plant. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all cloned. That means that if a disease is severe, it's going to be hit every single one. Mm-hmm. None of them are different. None of them have resistance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but potatoes, you know, potatoes are important. Uh, 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 like in Russia in World War II, when things were really tight, uh, you know, the Germans had conquered 
45% of the population in 1942, but they got more, a higher percentage of the decent farmland. Mm-hmm. Which made, and since Russia was not doing that well farming anyhow under communism, it's, you know, like, if, if the climate had been such that there was a bad year for crops in 42, Russia would have lost the war. But here's what people did do. You know, you have somebody who's working in a plant, you know, frantically making tanks yeah. in the Urals. Uh, everybody was growing potatoes around the plant, around their house. Potatoes, potatoes, potatoes. Everybody was growing potatoes. They're very productive. They don't take a whole lot of work. It's what kept people in Russia from starving to death. Mm. But anyhow, so the, uh, but as I said, sort of, you know, certain things the American Indians in terms of technological levels were, were quite strong on and other things they just really never really happened mm-hmm. uh, or, or hadn't happened yet. But anyhow, back to the early days of prehistory. Uh, the um, We now, you know, most of this sounds halfway simple. Guys live in Beringia and they were there for a while until the retreating glaciers gave them a path. We now are fairly confident that path was along the coast rather mm-hmm. than a split between the glaciers up in Canada. Okay. And then people rapidly move all over. Uh, North and South America. Mm-hmm. It sounds pretty simple, but there's at least something really strange in here we're missing. Okay. What's that? Uh, well, uh, this is a product of this recent genetic analysis. Mm-hmm. Okay. People found, you know, like, you know, people go out of their way to find samples of Indians, ideally in places where they are, you know, they're, they keep their old fashioned ways and perhaps they haven't mixed much with other populations yet. So you mean you can Indians find- today who are alive today? Amerindians, yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, now later, we've also extended this into the past, but but you know, the, at first we were just looking at American Indians who are alive today mm-hmm. in various places. Uh, I mean, sometimes this where you can't find people who are 100% Indian, you can say, well, this guy's 80% Indian. I know how to recognize the part of his genetics which is, say, Spanish, and I can sort of cut that out and then look at the remaining. Right. That's possible. That's possible. Uh, at any rate. Uh, uh, but they found that for Indians in Brazil, people who lived in the Amazon basin, mm-hmm. some of these people who are still not much in contact with the outside world, like now and then a tribe will say, well, we finally decided to risk it and start talking to the people outside. But okay. then some that happens even recently. So there's some of these areas are not much developed. They're pretty wild. Uh, and there are people in there who have uh, – They've been affected by the outside world in various ways, but they haven't actually personally contacted it, mm-hmm. at least or until quite recently. Anyhow, they were looking at the genetics of tribes of this sort, uh, and they found something strange. They found that there appeared to be another component. Remember, we can tell uh, by the right kind of, of analysis of genetic data that someone may have a mixture from various groups. Right. Okay. Well – most of the Indians were a fairly simple mixture, mostly coming, you know, not counting the Eskimos and the Nadene. Mm-hmm. They seemed like we had this group in Siberia, then in Beringia, and then it spilled out as the weather improved. And although there has been some little bit of regional differentiation, American Indians are pretty similar to each other, generally speaking. Genetically, they're mm-hmm. pretty similar. Uh, but some of these guys in Brazil had a component, not a huge amount of it, but enough to be sure it was there perhaps a few percent mm-hmm. uh, that was from somewhere else. And they started doing you, – you have methods of matching to see what group that we know of today 
is this component closest to? Okay, and what is it closest to? It's closest to a group of people who are short, dark uh, hunter-gatherers who live in the Andaman Islands, which is in the bay between Bengal and Burma. Okay, so they they genetically – they're people in the United States – American Indians seem to have oh, got some from, genes. In the Amazon basin, that's where you find it. People in the Amazon got genes from people around islands in Burma. Uh, near and, Burma, near near India, yes. And how long ago was this mix? How long ago did this? They don't have a precision. They have their estimate says pretty long, probably somewhere between you know seven and twenty thousand years or something like that. A good long time. Uh, I don't think they have a super tight estimate, but they they know it's not recent. Okay. Uh, and uh, now one of the interesting things is there was a a Brazilian. Uh, archaeologist or anthropologist who had found skeletons uh, which he thought didn't look like Mother American Indians in certain regions of the Amazon, mm -hmm. uh, some of which were pretty old. There's one 10,000 years old, sometimes called Lucia Woman, and they said you know, her skull tends to be sort of long and narrow, which is different from American Indian skulls. And you know, Her features looked more like people from Southeast Asia, which is, by the way, approximately where these Andaman Islanders live. Uh, and a little bit of background. Uh, today, the people who live in Southeast Asia are mostly groups that, to a large extent, move there from southern China. Mm -hmm. the, that's true of the Thai, the Vietnamese, the Burmese, uh, even and the, the Malays, although they took a roundabout path going by sea. Mm -hmm. But there are little remnant groups of short, dark-skinned people who are hunter-gatherers mostly. Mm -hmm. There's some up in the highlands of Malaysia. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there are some in a few places in Thailand and stuff, not very many. Mm -hmm. And these people turn out to be genetically similar to Andaman Islanders. Whoa. And by the way, there are other groups that are somewhat similar. You see they have at least some ancestry in common. You look at uh, – there are, you know, again, short, dark-skinned people who live in some – just a few, not many left, in places in the Philippines – and also Australian Aborigines and Melanesians up in New Guinea, they have some overlap with these people. What it looks like is, say, five or 6,000 years ago, a completely different set of people lived in the Philippines, in Indonesia, and in Southeast Asia. Those people were closer to the Andaman Islanders than they are to the people who live in those places today. Okay. So these people were hunter-gatherers. We have found mm -hmm. some skeletons. We know something about their tools. And after a while, they're replaced by people moving down from South China who are basically, you know, groups that farm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so it, so this group that's today, we see people like this who are somewhat related in, in the Andaman Islands, in some little regions scattered around South, Southeast Asia, uh, in some little regions scattered around in the Philippines. But it used to be they were the major, they were the almost the, they were the entire mm -hmm. population of these regions. So let's say any time more than six thousand years ago, uh, there were no Filipinos in the Philippines. Only these these groups. Is there a, a name for them nowadays? Like well, uh, we have a couple of names. The groups that you find, which by the way are mixed, they're not purely these old people, but mm -hmm. they're perhaps half these mm -hmm. previous groups. Uh, and sometimes, since a lot of them tend to be short and have dark skin, they're sometimes called negritos. They aren't 
they're being compared a little with pygmies, but they are they are similar in some ways. They look kind of similar, but they're not closely related. It looks like anybody who lives in a tropical jungle for a long time, the best answer is to be short and have dark skin. And okay. it's happened in several separate of times happened in Africa probably twice. So just for clarity, if we, do you want to call them the Negritos for the rest of this podcast? Well, another word that people use for this larger group that mm-hmm. used to cover all of Southeast Asia are Australo-Melanesians. Austral- uh, okay, that's a harder which one. Which is but, sort okay. of a combination of whoever was in Australia and whoever was in New Guinea. Uh, again, they're somewhat related, or okay, at least so Australo-Melanesians. Yes, all right, uh, that's... but today, but they kind of. You know, they like used to occupy a significant corner of the earth, but now you can only find them in a few little groups. Remnants. Okay, so so about six thousand years ago, the Australo-Melanesians were all, all over parts of Asia. They were in lots of places. Southeast Asia. Asia. Southeast they were Asia. in. Uh, and by the way, the the original inhabitants of India, before other people moved there from the Middle East mm-hmm. or from the steppes, were kind of in were kind of similar too. Okay, and somehow. Their DNA is in, in people who live people in, 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 the, in the Amazon jungle, and it seems to have gotten there between six and twenty thousand years ago. So, very vaguely, something so this like is, that. Yeah, so this is quite. How did they puzzle. do it? Yes, what could no, have happened? No, nobody knows. Now, uh, so this is ancient my, aliens could fit into this, right? They were experimenting. They would help because us. you know they're always willing to give you a, a lift. Yeah, and it could explain uh, so many things, but uh, that, we, but. Move away but, from the but, aliens. But see, here's my my picture. There are others. Okay. Uh, uh, if you go back 20,000 years, mm-hmm. uh, remember those glaciers haven't retreated yet. And so North America is a difficult place. A lot of it's very cold. Okay. Uh, Canada is mostly covered with ice. A lot of the central United States is covered with – Chicago is covered with ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, – you know, uh, you know, there's parts of Canada today that are basically just pine trees with not a whole lot of stuff living there because yeah. it's old. It's called taiga, that yeah. that kind of forest. Well, there was taiga all the way down to the Gulf Coast in the United States. Now, Florida was a little warmer, but it's like an island of a warmer region. Mm-hmm. Uh, but South America, which is, you know, the equator goes right through South America. Mm-hmm. South America was not covered with ice other than a few things up in the Andes in the south. And Brazil was different from today. Not so much of a jungle, lots of open savanna, probably a, not a bad place to make a living for a hunter-gatherer. Okay, so, Jungles. so, so South America, was if you could get there, it would have been a great place about 20,000 years yes. ago. Okay. Yes. But getting uh, there was a challenge. for. I don't know how anybody could have done it, but somebody did. Uh, now, one of the questions is, like, could this mix already have been in the populations that were moving down from the north into South America. Yes. Yeah. Well, the be- problem with that is every single person of Amerindians that lived in Central America, Mexico, North and North America doesn't have it. Well, could there have been a wave that had it? And when we look at ancient DNA, yeah, they don't in, in those same regions. None of them have it either. So when we Okay, so you'd expect even if the first wave that all had it, even if they were wiped out, 
in the north, you'd expect to see this in the, their bodies, right? You could you would dig up. Well, it, it, it's not guaranteed. I mean, you could imagine there was a first wave that had such a mixture. Although, by the way, you don't. We also now have some samples of people in Beringia. You know, this is interesting because it was Beringia after other Indians had left. So they're kind of the left behind Beringians. Mm. Oh, and by the way, in those same areas, which you know, parts of Alaska are still above water, today those people look pretty much Amerindian. But a few thousand years ago, they looked Beringian, which is a little less, say, specialized than American Indian. It looks like other American Indians moved back into Alaska. This is all easier after the ice is gone. You can move back and forth. But anyhow, we have some a Beringian sample, and it doesn't show any either. Okay. So. It doesn't show any of this Adam and Eve-like component. So we have old stuff from North – or we have a sample of from Clovis culture. And by the way – very generally, there's sort of an east-west split among the American Indians with, on the whole, more of the western group moving down into South America, although these people occasionally mix too. Okay, uh, the Clovis culture, we have a skeleton from the Clovis culture. Mm-hmm. And they look, even though it was in Montana, they're in the group that later settled South America. Mm-hmm. But they don't have any of this animal ease-like thing either. Now, how confident are we of the science? It's just there. They didn't look for it. They missed it. I think that in terms of things that have been published where you have the complete genome is available to download, I think they've looked at all of them. I could be wrong. But my impression is the people, you know, David Reich's people, they've checked every one of them, and they don't see it anywhere. Like the closest, the farthest they see this component outside of the Amazon basin is they saw some just a tiny bit of the way into Panama. Mm-hmm. But that was a group that everybody knew moved there from South America because right. all its rel- its linguistic relatives are down in South America. Uh, and there's also other things, like it's hard to get samples in North America because everybody's being afraid of getting into some controversy or being sued. Oh, yeah. So there, for all I know, there are uh, examples of North American Indian DNA that show some of this, but nobody has admitted to any. Okay. Nobody has published any. Nobody has claimed any. Nobody has said any. And when the right people say, we've seen absolutely zero out of outside uh, Brazil, you know, the, the Amazon basin, and, and and right a little tiny bit just at the that's you know sort of leaked past the edges of the basin, uh-huh. I figure they mean it. Okay. But. You know, I'm kind of relying on them to know what they're doing, but they certainly have so far in everything I could identify. Uh, uh, as I said, the, you know, the, the Amazon Basin would have been a good place for hunter-gatherers to make a living. But and by the way, there weren't that many places in the world that were good. It was a very tough time. But, but so it, I mean, since we at this point, in terms of the evidence I've been able to find, mm-hmm. there is no sign of it anywhere outside the Amazon basin. There's no sign. I did hear uh, somebody claimed that there was a talk somebody gave, not yet published, in which they found a little bit of this in some very far southern group in South America, but I haven't had, I can't confirm that yet. So, okay. People who live near Tierra del Fuego, but I am not sure. That's, you know, that's uh, that's hearsay, sort of. So how, how could this group originally have gotten to South America then? That's a toughie. Uh, I mean, I, like, let me say, it looks to me like they got there first. So they got there before any of the, the ancestors the of the people we call Native yes. Americans. We'll call those guys showed up 
they get past the glaciers about 15,000 years ago or okay. 60. But these guys apparently got there at least somewhat earlier, but they got to South America. No sign of them right now anywhere in North or Central America. Uh, now, you can, it's not so crazy to not find them in North America because North America was a crappy place uh, in this time period. Uh, but how they did it, I have no idea. I've been cracking my brains well, on it, talking it to other been, people. I mean, if, if like ten of them were on some boat and a storm washed them, you know, really. I far. think the technical phrase is they thought they were on a three-hour tour. Yeah, Gilligan's Island. Yes. Uh, well, you see, in Gilligan's Island, if you want to think about the long-term reproduction <laughs> success of the Minoites, yeah, <laughs> uh, it boils down to Ginger and Marianne. That is true. Mrs. Howell is too old, uh, and uh, I can only hope that they mostly mate with uh, the professor rather than with <laughs> either. Certainly not with Gilligan. Uh, but uh, the point is, there's not enough. There's with a like you know, forget the Howell. You know, forget Mrs. Howell for sure. She's too right. old. We've got two women. Right. Can you Fertile get a working colony out of this? I said you could with great good luck if you land and food's really easy to get, but the odds are against you. Okay. Uh, so how many do you probably need to get any any number that like the number that came in by walking down the west coast of Canada might have been a few hundred and that's plenty. Okay, you, you should be fine genetically with that kind of number. But if we're talking some sort of boat or raft, uh, it's hard to see how you'd have, particularly because you know, like we should talk about what could people do back in these times. We know something. Yeah. We know modern humans made it to Australia. They had to cross some water to do so. Mm-hmm. We know that. Yeah, so the Pacific that, is really big compared to going Yes, it is. But the, the next step people took, which is known for sure to have happened, yeah. is they, they, there are a set of islands, the closest, some of which are not too far from New Guinea. Mm-hmm. By the way, when I say Australia, that included New Guinea. They were connected. Okay. And they're pretty easy to cross today. There's little islands in between. Mm-hmm. any rate, so humans settled uh, they called when it was joined. It's called they call it Saho, but it was you know the uh, Australia New Guinea continent. Mm-hmm. And then a bit later, they started settling the islands in the Solomon Islands, which is a chain of islands. the The farthest west ones are not too far from New Guinea, mm-hmm. and there they had to cross some deep water again. And they got there about forty thousand years ago. And then they spread gradually through all the islands of the Solomons. See, the Solomon Islands are close enough; you can always see the next island. Uh-huh. And then that, yeah. they got to a point where you can't see the next island. There's a long gap, mm-hmm. and they stopped probably thirty thousand years ago. So we know they could do some things. They could get from an island to an island, and they would bother to do it at least once in a while when they could see the next place. But that that would seem easy. I mean, you just get some wood and you, you know. Why don't you try it? Uh, well, I, I mean, mean I, I imagine if like you know, I'd done something horrible, they were going to kill me, and I'm like, well, all right. I, well, there could be motives. Or yeah. people said like like we've gotten crowded into this corner of the island. Right. You know, it doesn't have much hunting or doesn't have much fishing. Maybe we should just try the next one. Yeah, I, I mean, just, I can I can believe it. Uh, and it took a while. It might have been ten thousand years from the beginning to the end of the Solomons. But then it was 30,000 years before other people went way out into the Pacific, the Polynesians, uh, who were excellent sailors and had, you know, they had uh, fancy big canoes with outriggers that, you know, they could do more. And they but, studied currents, didn't they? 
they ended up knowing a lot about navigation. Today. They could identify an island on the horizon because of, like a lot of these small islands in the Pacific would tend to have a little cloud over it because the island absorbs more heat and generates a, a little okay. updraft and a cloud. Mm-hmm. They could, or there would be wave patterns of how the waves are scattering off the island. Okay. They so. could identify. Uh, in some cases, like volcanic islands, you can see them a great distance away because they'd have, A, a tall mountain and there might even be lava coming out of the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, some well, of the time, like at the Hawaiian Islands. Hawaiian Islands are a long way from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a major uh, uh, success to, to, to find them and, and settle them. Yeah. But uh, uh, we don't know the exact – we don't know what people used to cross to these places. We know they did cross. Mm-hmm. So we don't know, did they have a raft? Did they have a dugout canoe? We could we figured they didn't have something as good as the Polynesians. That comes much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what exactly – Oh, by the way, there's now it looks like even earlier groups could drop cross very short water gaps, like mm-hmm. ten miles. You know, at some point where you could cling to a log and swim across. Yeah. Uh, so we now know that some early guys, probably Homo erectus, got to the Philippines. Oh. Again, probably at 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 when the water sea level was particularly low. They weren't thought to be to, very smart, were they? Well, but they did this. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm not sure if you could find. You know, a medium-sized uh, dead uh, tree. Mm-hmm. I mean, the water is warm in that part of the world. You could, and at at certain points of uh, of the glace of the ice ages, where the sea level is a full 300 uh, um, feet lower than today, or a bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only a couple of short gaps. You know, islands that we see get bigger as the water level drops. There's mm-hmm. only a couple of short gaps going from Borneo. You could walk all the way to Borneo. Mm-hmm. The islands joined, uh, some of the islands of Indonesia, but you have to cross a couple of short gaps, let's say 10 kilometers mm-hmm. each, something like that, to get to the Philippines. But evidently they were able to do it because they found something 700,000 years old. It's oh. clearly somebody hunted uh, a, a rhino. By the fact the, rhino, fact the rhino ever got there is another sign that these were short gaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, any rate, how did they do it? Like, we know up to 40,000, 30,000 years ago, people could do the sort of crossing, say, between two islands and the Solomons. They could go 20 or 30 miles sometimes. What was the longest gap to, to get to, to South get America? Crossed? Yeah. Oh, thousands of miles. Okay. Well, the other thing is there's not a single sign of early inhabitation of any of the Pacific Islands. So we, they weren't. there's no evidence that they were in Hawaii before – Oh no! I mean, Hawaii would be particularly difficult. It's really way out in the middle of nowhere. No, there are no. There is no. This could change if we found something. But as it is, we've never found anything that goes back a really long way in any far-out Pacific island. And I claim it's likely that nobody landed on those islands because when people did land on them, which might be in you know like within the last two thousand years, most of the time, mm-hmm. uh, almost every one of those islands had flightless birds. Ah, and they don't survive very long with humans. And, and then soon after people landed, they lost most of those flightless birds. In fact, there's a type of bird called a rail, which mm-hmm. you know, normally can fly, but there were flightless forms of the rail on essentially every island out in the Pacific, and every one of them disappeared shortly after now, people showed up. Could there have been islands then that aren't now, like an, an island formed by an undersea volcano that arose and then eroded sure. after a few hundred years? and they It's possible, but, but here's my here's my argument. It, by the way, that's not impossible. Uh, there, I mean, there were certainly more islands then than there are now. 
because the water level was 300 feet lower. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, but think of it this way. Let's suppose you know this is a very early day. People could do a little bit of crossing, but there's no evidence they're going out into, into you know they're not routinely going out and fishing you know out out way out of sight of land or anything. Yeah. You know people did that later, but you know you know what happens to most of the first few million people who try that they don't yeah. come back. Yeah. Uh, okay, there's not there's no sign they did much of this. So at any rate, uh, and because you know again there's all these gaps that apparently were not crossed. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean New Zealand there was nobody nobody got to New Zealand until like around 1350 or something 1400. You know, not that, not that much earlier than the, uh, European explorers. Yeah. Or, you know, 1300, you know, not a whole lot earlier. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if people were there, they would have eaten the Moas even earlier. <laughs> uh, so, and there's other, plenty of other islands where there's no sign for early landings. But my point is, let, remember, this is probably not a planned expedition. When people are going to the next island, they can see that probably is a planned expedition. It's, right. it may be one in which, you know, they may be, you know, they may be in trouble to need to do it, but still they plan some. Yeah. But if you're going to, uh, suppose we have an expedition. Let's say we have a raft with 20 people on it, mm-hmm. half of them women. They might have been trying to go to the next island, but mm-hmm. some, they get caught in a storm or something and they end up, you know, they have to drift clear across the Pacific. Yeah. The point is if you go across the Pacific randomly, if you, if you can go that far, which is by the way, quite difficult. You're bound to run into South America eventually. You can't, you can't miss it. You can miss most of the islands of the Pacific. Like if you just talk, if you just look at a random path through the Pacific, yeah. you won't run into an island. Now, how long, there's, there's, how, what's the fastest it could have been with favorable winds? I don't know. I, I haven't been able to find a way to make it work at all. Uh, I mean, the thing that works best is there is a, a current, the Japan current. It goes up north, and then it bends around and goes down the west coast of Canada. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is plausible in the sense that occasionally in the past, Japanese fishing vessels would get beat up, and they would coast on that and actually land in North America, and sometimes with survivors. Mm-hmm. There was, for example, one this happened around 1800 or just mm-hmm. a little earlier. They landed on the coast of British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Two, two, two fishermen were still alive. See, the thing is, they had to have enough rain. They could fish. They knew how to fish. Mm-hmm. And they had some supplies. But two of them survived, and they were immediately enslaved by the local Indians. Okay. However, the Mounties heard, or actually the Hudson Bay Company, mm-hmm. they heard about it, and they, and they released them. And they were hoping to make some sort of commercial treaty with Japan. And they brought these guys along as a sweetener, said, we found a couple of Japanese castaways. Yeah. Uh, here they are. We, we fed them and everything. Uh, and the Japanese said, no deal. We don't want them back. <laughs> God, they were contaminated. We want, essentially, yes. Uh, they've seen the outside world. We can't trust them. <laughs> uh, and they wouldn't, and they ended up, I think, living in Hong Kong. Uh, I mean, the, the British did nothing wrong. Uh, yeah. I would say the local Indians were being kind of naughty who enslaved them. The Japanese, they're just being weird. And, and, you know, and they continue to be so for some time after this. But people have found tens, you know, historical records of tens of such ships floating and landing on the Pacific coast somewhere of Central America or Mexico or, and a few cases there were survivors. Uh, mm-hmm. which makes you wonder. That must have been, there must have been other ones even earlier. Right. But right. most of them did not have much effect on Indian culture. 
There's one place where there's this, or maybe two, where there's a suspicion that somebody might have landed and showed somebody a pottery style. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's all sorts of things you could bring along with you, but the average illiterate East Asian fisherman, he didn't bring any rice with him, or at least apparently not, you know, which we would notice if the Indians were growing rice. There's, uh, uh, you know, the you know the, the Chinese had iron, they had bronze, they had all sorts of complicated things. So did the Japanese and Koreans. But it just turns out if you you know if you just drop a couple of random guys, half the time you know somebody kills them when they land or they enslave. You know, like in fiction, you you end up becoming king. Right, but that's well, why they don't speak the language. It is. Uh, there is one place on the coast of South America where you get this suspicion that. There's a pottery style arose that looked very much like a certain Japanese pottery style. So people have wondered. Isn't there, I think there's a Native American language that's related to the Japanese language and there's some weird coincidences? Not to my knowledge, but I don't know everything. I haven't heard okay. of it. There could be. But I, when I was talking about Ket, this language which is similar with Navajo, they usually describe it as the only one that you can really see the resemblance. Mm -hmm. uh, so I haven't heard about Anything close to Japanese, but but it's possible. Uh, uh, we don't know. Uh, there is uh, there is a, one of the crops of South America managed to get to uh, um, the Polynesians, uh, a, a kind of yam, which mm -hmm. is a big became a big crop for them. It's possible that they landed on the South American coast and did a little bit of trading, but you know nobody knows. How long ago would that have been then? Well, we know when it showed up in, in uh, the Polynesia, which is about 800, 800 years ago. Yeah. So that would give you a rough idea. Yeah. Uh, by the way, some people think it floated there by accident. I don't. I think it uh, – somebody did a recent study that claimed that, but I don't think it's right. I think somebody brought it. So uh, so anyhow, you know, how easy is it to cross Pacific? I said it's not easy. You know, the simplest way is this Japan current that turns into the Kuroshio current after a while. Mm -hmm. uh, but – I, mean, I don't know what it was like in the Ice Age. I mean, as it is, it goes up fairly far north before it turns again. I don't know how easy it was to survive that, particularly if we have a bunch of – although I should say, you know, we – you know, these people I talked about as Australo-Melanesians, which are, you know, probably somebody kind of like the group that explains this thing in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, they used to – you know, I said they used to live in Southeast Asia, but they used to live even farther north than that. Their historical records – talking about little black people up in the hills in uh, Chinese civilization. I mean, during times, you know, within the last 2,000 years, there used mm -hmm. to be people like this in places that are now South China. And we have one ancient skeleton from that was found near Peking, and it mm -hmm. has some commonality with this uh, southern Australo-Melanesian branch of people, and, it's 40, and it was near Peking. Of course, mm -hmm. that was 46,000 years ago, so, you know, it looks like the Australo-Melanesians have pursued a very simple strategy for thousands of years. Lose. Well, lose, retreat, lose, retreat, lose, retreat. Most groups have done that, though, right? I mean, Well, except for the groups that we're descended from, that yes, mostly are ones that didn't. But funny, go back, funny how that, yeah, go back 40,000 years in history, and most of the people there are going to end up being losers. Uh, well, yeah, but the people who are today are mostly descended from winners because yeah. winners, the winners won. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't tell you what's going to happen yeah, next. Selection bias. Uh, but uh, at any rate, my suspicion and a few other people think I have, I have a fair chance of being right. Uh, 
that somehow these guys got to Brazil first. And it makes a certain amount of sense that they'd live in Brazil because Brazil was a good place to live where most of North America was not. And by the way, a lot of far, you know, the southern third of South America may not have been too great either at the, near the glacial maximum, mm-hmm. uh, the coldest time. Uh, yeah. But how they got across the Pacific basically beats me. Uh, could the they thing- have been more advanced? I mean, could this been a this been an example of a fallen civilization? Well, the, what, what we know of them in Southeast Asia is they were kind of primitive. Their uh, their uh, tools were not very advanced compared to, like compared to the early American Indians, for example, or or other groups. Uh, although one thing that complicates this is uh, there is a strong possibility that people made in certain areas of southern China, Southeast Asia, and so forth, made a lot of their tools out of bamboo, which would not last till today. Yeah. When you make things out of vegetable materials, they're, they're I mean, you know, it's very unusual to have uh, uh, things like uh, even a wooden spear last a really long time. There are a couple of very unusual cases where it, it survived in a swamp where it couldn't rot because there was no oxygen. Uh, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, we, we, we find stone things because they last. Uh, but could somebody have landed earlier? I said, maybe. I mean, but there's a lot of things we know. I mean, if you, if a group was successful, if it was a period when the climate wasn't too bad, you think it would have expanded all over the Americas. Now, the period we're talking about, the climate was bad in North America. So maybe you wouldn't have moved there, uh, or at least not very far into it or something. Uh, so that could work. But the other thing is if these guys were very good at hunting, you would expect certain animals to disappear. And although lots of animals disappear, they disappear later after the uh, general brand of American Indians showed up. Uh, uh, but I don't, I don't know. These guys may not have been fantastic hunters. Uh, there have been you know, records of people who weren't. Uh, or could they have just been limited geographically that they couldn't expand into certain areas? So they killed all the big animals where they were, but they all the big animals had other areas to go to, and they could. There, there is no back. sign of you know nothing was going as far as I know. There's no sign of anything, no wave of extinction happening 20,000 years ago in South America. I may be wrong, but I've, I've never heard of anything that sounds like that. Oh, I should mention one other thing. I was talking about the wave of extinctions that did happen around 10 or 11,000 years ago in both North and South America. It's called Indian show up and have a barbecue. Yeah. There is another interesting connection to this, uh, two actually. One is uh, that, see, in the Caribbean islands, there were also large animals, not as large, usually kind of a medium-sized version. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, and again, sometimes the gaps between those islands are not too large at low water. Mm-hmm. So uh, there were, uh, as I said, the largest ground sloths got to be the size, the weight of an elephant. Mm-hmm. The ones that they found in the Caribbean were more the size of a bear. Mm-hmm. Still, you know, significant. And there were some other interesting animals. Some of them were fairly large. They did not go extinct at the same time as the things on the mainland. They didn't go extinct until like 5,000 years later, which is – you see, people did not immediately colonize the Caribbean islands. I would say that the guys who were going down the Pacific coast, they knew at least something about boating because Mm -hmm. we have found, you know, human effects on some places like the Channel Islands off Santa Barbara. Mm Mm-hmm which 
although they were bigger and closer at low water, you always had to cross at least a little water to get there. Mm-hmm. So these these proto-Indians or whatever had some canoes or something. But when you think of it, after you walk clear across North America, you may not remember how to make a canoe anymore. Yeah. By the time right. you get to Texas, yeah, you know, you're not going to be in practice making it, right? Yeah. And so it, people had to reinvent boats in, around the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And then they started in the closest places. There's some islands very close to South America, like Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And they expanded up through there again, going to the next island, etc. Until, like Cuba is one of the light, later ones you get to. Even though, yeah. see, Cuba is too far to, apparently it's too far to see from the, like the Florida Keys. Mm-hmm. I need to check on that. But uh, it's 90 miles, I know that, because I remember Diana and I had trying to swim it. <laughs> but uh, it was um, apparently, apparently nobody settled from that direction. They came up island by island from South America. Okay. Uh, but uh, anyhow, uh, by the way, this does hint that it's people, because if, can you guess what the, what one of the more common explanations other than people is for the mass extinction in uh, North America and South America? Uh, well, climate change. Yes, well, as I, as I have suggested yeah. once in my blog, people, scientists are offered certain carnal rewards every time <laughs> that they use the phrase climate change in, in any paper on any subject. Well, and, I haven't been told of these rewards, but. <laughs> well, you know, you're an economist. Yeah. So probably okay. doesn't, but, you know, the paleontologists, they, they, they know about this. Uh, don't you like the, you know, the classy way I put it, you know, carnal rewards? At any rate, the, uh, 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 Anyhow, it happened a lot later, and it was when people showed up, which makes it sound like it's, you know, people showing up, like it was everywhere else this happened. Uh, you know, there were flightless birds on the Azores, and they disappeared when people showed up. Uh, I used to worry about this because I could find no historical record. Evidently, the Portuguese ate them so fast they never wrote it down. But uh, later, I found some work. People have done some archaeology in the Azores, and guess what they find? Fossils of little flightless rails. Mm-hmm. Just like every other island, uh, uh, and you know, they disappeared at the, you know, after the Portuguese showed up. But uh, anyhow, there's one other theory which people have kicked around, which strikes me as truly demented, uh, <laughs> which is the idea is that there was some sort of meteorite shower that uh, that killed off all the mammoths and almost killed off the people in North America ten thousand years ago. To which I said, it's a meteorite shower that hits both North and South America. That's a hell of a meteorite shower. Yeah. And the next thing is, and then, but it, and then it, some of it takes, only hits 5,000 years later in Cuba. I said, <laughs> really? I mean, the way it has to hit like 100, 200 years later in South America than North America, because it is just a little bit later, just like yeah. you'd expect from people having to get down to South America. And people yeah. are writing articles about this and putting them in proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, <laughs> mainly because, you know, there's a way to, if you have some old dude in, in the NAS who's mm. on your side, he can deliberately put things in and skip peer review, mm. all, or at least skip most of it. But I'll tell you, it's, I mean, what does it take to kill a mammoth? I said, well, it needs a certain... I said, why, do you think that each little meteorite is going to come down like a bullet and then aim at a mammoth? The only way you do it is you need to have explosions big enough that you have enough overpressure that you kill them. And then what and how would what areas would need to have that overpressure? I said, 
every square mile in North and South America. Yeah, that seems unlikely. Yeah, I mean, you would have trouble doing it with a full-scale nuclear strike. <laughs> and I, I said, and you can't talk to these people. I've seen them show up, and they start talking about, oh yeah, we found all this evidence of, you know, they're completely nuts. Uh, but but you know, in a good way. I mean, I haven't seen them. You know, they're not advocating mass extermination of anybody. They're I'm just always. saying they're not advocating it. But they're they're totally crazy. Uh, okay. But anyhow, but back, yeah, back on, yeah to the Australia. back to the end, which I consider the the real mystery. It is how did you get these guys to South America? Now, uh, certain things we we have a chance. Like the the guys who the guy who found these skeletons that look different, he found a bunch of them. Now, if any of them, there's good enough DNA preservation. And let's suppose we find one, and it says like. I've seen a couple of estimates ranging from maybe two to nine percent for the amount of andamanesian mixture in these guys. Mm -hmm. But let's suppose you find one and it's eighty. I said, okay, it means they were there first. Okay, now why does it mean they were there there first? Because it means you're close to pure. I mean, which you expect that whatever American Indian thing is something that you know happened a little later or something. Uh, I mean, like if these guys were already there in in Beringia, there's no way you know if you know, they had a long time to mix in Beringia, thousands of years. People were kind of trapped in Beringia for a while. Yeah. Thousands of years. And, like, I can tell you normally what happens. Like, suppose I've seen something in that scenario. What if some guy in a boat goes up the east coast of Asia, who's sort of animanese like and lands in Beringia and sort of merges into the population? Mm-hmm. I said, well, if he stays there very long, after a while, his genes are spread out thinly in every person there. Yeah. There'll be nobody who's half him or quarter. It'll just be, you know, everybody will have a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, how do you go from everybody having a little of it to one guy having 80%? Guess what? There is no way. Yeah. There's no way to do that. There's, it's impossible. Uh, so yeah. what? It, the only way to have, if you find somebody who has a high percentage, then that is the minimum percentage of whoever was first there. If it's 100%, then the minimum is 100%. I mean, if we can find, if we can succeed in extracting DNA from some of these funny-looking skeletons, I figure somebody's trying, but I don't know what's going on. Uh, and, and sometimes we don't succeed, particularly in hot, wet places, and Brazil is one of those places. Mm-hmm. So I don't guarantee this will work, but there's a reasonable chance. Another thing is I mentioned this site in Chile, uh, well, it's looking awfully old. It might be. Now, we haven't found any skeletons there, but if we do, we're very interesting to look at them. They might be from this earlier group. We know, for example, that their tools and things don't look anything like the ones in North America that are, you know, say Clovis or anything. Could they have been this earlier group? Assuming I'm right and there was an earlier group, maybe. We don't know. But if we found even, you know, the slightest sliver of bone, We'd have a good shot again because uh, Chile is cooler. Mm-hmm. It's better. Uh, you know, the best thing it turns out there's areas uh, where your skull is thickest that are the best place to, mm-hmm. for DNA preservation. They've learned over the years near you know near your ears, temporal mm-hmm. bone. Uh, if we found that, you know, maybe we we might get we might do it. But as it is, no one can be sure. We know for sure that there is this different mixture. But whether it was their first, we can be sure it's not real recent. 
There, there are technical ways to. It looks so well mixed that you can tell it wasn't recent. Uh, people said, "Well, could it have been Polynesians?" The answer is no. It's not genetically similar enough to Polynesians, and it's too old to be Polynesian. So they're sure of that. But how did they get there? Uh, I, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to come up with a scenario. But you know, there are interesting things. For example, in biology, where something happened. And it's hard to see how they did it, but they did do it. Uh, for example, monkeys somehow got from Africa to South America. And at the time it happened, the Atlantic was already there and it was, you know, fairly wide. It, you know, it may have been a fantastic moment of luck, mm-hmm. but, but what would it take to start a colony? Um, yeah. to have a reasonable chance of success, more like 20. Or at least fifteen or something. I mean, you know, uh, I can think of a couple of recent examples. After the mutiny on the bounty, mm-hmm. uh, the people, the mutineers, decided to hide because they're afraid they would be executed if the British Navy found them. And right. they were right, by the way, they would have executed them. Uh, and so they uh, took a boat or a ship to an island which was habitable, but nobody lived on it, Pitcairn mm-hmm. Island, mm-hmm. and they brought. Some Tahitian women, think, thinking ahead, uh, something like, I forget, six or eight of them. And they brought also another group of Tahitian men, not thinking ahead. Uh, so there were more men than there were women on this island. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And trouble, trouble ensued. Yes. <laughs> uh, I guess it must have been toxic masculinity or something. <laughs> At the end of the story... When the when the place was redis when when the British Navy found this place, mm-hmm. there was one all but one of the women had survived. Only one of the men survived, mm-hmm. and he was this old white haired guy surrounded by an enormous number of children mm-hmm. and grandchildren and so forth. Uh, actually, that that colony probably would have succeeded, but again, it had like six women and. I think almost all the actually almost all the he had some elaborate story about how he didn't really do it. He just <laughs> happened to be the guy who was alive at the end of it. I am not perfectly convinced. Although there were witnesses, I mean the women knew what happened. Yeah. On the other hand, they said, "What are we going to kill the only guy left on the island? Uh, have him hung by the British?" Anyway, I don't know, but uh, it would be interesting if you could find a few other examples of colonies that were started by very small numbers of people and see how they succeeded mm-hmm. or not. Uh, I've heard people do genetic simulations. They like they like a number like 20 or, or bigger. I mean, not because the evidence in South America points to that, but more like because it's it these colonizations often fail if they're smaller than that. Of course, uh, you could say that maybe there'd only be a one percent chance of it to have succeeded. You know, one of the irritating things about history is that there can be things like that, and you know, suppose a a 1% chance happens, but it has a big, it makes a big difference. Right. To that extent, it means history is unpredictable. Yeah. Well, like, like example, sickle cell. Sickle cell matters a lot in Africa. A lot of places, it gives you a lot of protection. It gives you a lot of trouble if you have two copies, etc. It looks like that mutation happened only once, about 7,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. What if the guy who had it had fallen off a cliff or been eaten by a lion? Yeah. As far as I know, there would be no sickle cell today. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, uh, but probably there are some things like that, you know, where it's, you know, some total freak 
happens. Uh, or like, here's one. Uh, Queen Elizabeth's father must have had a mutation uh, on the, one of the X chromosomes he passed to her that caused uh, hemophilia. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have been on every sperm. It probably been on just this one. Okay. Well, that had consequences. You know, that's why that's yeah, why the, Rasputin became famous. Yeah, the Russian Revolution. Remember? <laughs> yep. Russia's greatest love machine. <laughs> uh, I mean, it it caused things to happen among you know since almost all the royalty of Europe after a while were her descendants. Mm-hmm. She made. A difference, not one she would have wanted to make, not one she made on purpose. I mean, she didn't want those little boys to get sick, but it happened. But you mean and Queen if, Elizabeth with Queen Victoria, or I meant to say Queen Victoria. Okay. Said, yes. Yes. All right, yeah. yes. Sorry. No, Queen Elizabeth had no children, and that made a difference too. Yeah. Uh, that was probably prenatal syphilis, and often can cause sterility. Uh, but uh, uh, but anyhow, yeah, Queen Victoria. Uh, but it boils down to which sperm, right? You know, that mm. seems like a small thing. Uh, and, you know, for all I know, a cosmic ray went through the precursor cell to make it happen or some, you know, some tiny random event. Sometimes. Mm. You, so, I mean, there probably were things in history uh, or like, you know, the Byzantines. There was a refugee from Syria mm-hmm. uh, after the Muslims had conquered it who had been an alchemist. Mm-hmm. He was unhappy about leaving Syria, he invented Greek fire and mm-hmm. and gave it to the Byzantine government, sold it actually to the mm-hmm. Byzantine government. But you know, if he'd been killed, probably nobody would have invented Greek fire. Yeah. Well, at least that's possible. I mean, I don't think it was something that everybody, it never got reinvented by anybody else that I know of. I mean, there were people who were interested, you know, people whose fleets had been destroyed by it. Mm-hmm. You'd think they'd want to copy it, but they never succeeded, really. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. But, uh, like, is it possible that you had, like, a raft with 20 people? Let, let, let's come up with a semi-plausible scenario. These guys were looking already to go to another island. Perhaps their tribe was in trouble. Right. Perhaps they have been pushed to the edge. I mean, we know examples of, of Polynesian groups that went off on an expedition because they were threatening to all be killed by their neighbors. Yeah. Because that's something that happens sometimes. But let's suppose this happened. It's a long time ago. Let's 20,000 years ago or something. And then because of something unusual, you know, they happened, you know, some are moderate and unusual. Like, can you exist for a long time if you keep getting rain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, or, and let's suppose you were, you were, you knew how to fish. Many people in islands did. Right. And you were unusual unusually fortunate and you go on the, you actually drift no, wait, can you like, fish in the deep ocean i mean it depends you, where are you there are there are places fish? where fish are kind of scarce yeah uh and there's other places where like i have read accounts of guys who were uh castaways from sunken ships uh in various times world war ii other times some of these people floated for a long time before they were rescued some of them did some fishing some of them did something as simple as like if you just you know, after if you floated for a hundred days, after a while you pull up the uh, you have some ropes dragging in the water. There are now barnacles growing on them. You eat those barnacles. Oh, yeah. they're, they're edible uh, and full of of liquid that is not so salty as the ocean. If you can catch fish, the blood of fish is not as salty as the ocean. Mm-hmm. It could help you. Uh, if you catch a bird, uh, 
I mean, I remember, uh, what was it? Uh, Eddie Rickenbacker got, he got, uh, he crashed out in the Pacific in World War II and he was, and they were, they were all saying, if I really move quietly, I'll be able to grab this bird that's standing on my head. <laughs> and we want that bird more than we've ever wanted a steak in our entire lives. Yeah. Mm. Some of these things, but, uh, I can, I know of examples in that northerly route where the Japanese would get caught in, where sometimes people got enough rain, they made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what you have to rely on. There's no way these people had, you know, big 50-gallon drums of water on, on their raft. Nobody knew how to make something like that, as far as I could tell. I mean, probably in, the only way anybody carried water was in a skin bag mm-hmm. uh, back that far in the past. But, you know, you, you, may, you may even need weather patterns that don't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean, they, there was there was at least some differences back at the glacial maximum. We know there were, you know, that some of the storms took different paths. There were places that got a lot of rain that don't today. Mm-hmm. Okay, could this have been part of the story? I said it could be, but I don't know enough about it. I'm not sure we we know enough about estimates of climate, particularly over mid Pacific, where you're not going to find, you know, over a continent you can see what happened at different times because of erosion and things. I don't know how you tell how much it used to rain in mid-Pacific, uh, unless you could look at an island maybe. Could, this guess. might be crazy, but might there have been an iceberg that they were, you know, they found? And... Crazy. But look, some people have wondered about a southern route where you, say, go from Australia all the way to southern South America. And they, I've heard people say, well, couldn't they have just landed on Antarctica or something? I said, yeah, because that always works. There's well, lots. Antarctica is a great place. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I doubt, I don't believe in the southern route because you have to go very, but, you know, I, I'm not sure what to believe. It looks like it happened. It isn't something that's so weird it's against the laws of physics. It's not like they jumped to the moon, okay, which really? is impossible. But it's real hard Unless, you know, maybe there's a mechanism, maybe there's something I'm missing. I've talked to a couple of people about it. Uh, now, to all that, the, yes? So in terms of time, like how long ago could it have, could it have happened 50,000 years ago? And they just survived there for 30,000 years or? Well, we don't find a lot of signs in terms of stone tools and things. Mm-hmm. We maybe find some, but we certainly don't find, you know, deep time accumulations. Okay. I don't think. Uh, and also, some of that period, you would have been, if it's too much earlier, you're, you're in a better climate. You're not so close to the glacial maximum, which is 20 something thousand. And they would have been more likely to move up into places like Central America and North America, which would have been better in such, those periods. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but, you know, I think, uh, I think there's a fair chance we'll find some skeleton in Brazil that's old and that looks like and that was when either the other American Indians had not yet come or they hadn't replaced everybody everywhere. Mm-hmm. I think there's a chance you'll I mean, like, here's the argument. Lucy, a woman, which is this 10,000 year old one. She looks like an, uh, like somebody from this old group in Southeast Asia. Her skull looks like it. You don't get to have your skull look a whole lot like somebody else because you're 5% their ancestry, but you will have it if it's 40 or 50 or a hundred. Yeah. So, so I would say, assuming now Reich talks about this in his book, and even bothers to say, well, some people think that Walter Neves was kind of unscientific, and then we checked on his idea, and of course it turned out to have some core of truth. <laughs> Reich, you know, anybody, any 
when anybody else does anything, it, it can't be the right way because it's, you know, like when he was saying that, you know, we were genetically able to show that people in Northern Europe were taller than people in Southern Europe. <laughs> and I said, but I already knew that. Yeah. Now, by the way, that's a case where you do have to think about it because food availability is important. Yeah. You will get shorter if you don't have enough to eat. But since there are many people from, say, Sicily who moved to the United States, and there are also many people from Sweden who moved to the United States, both of which it's a place that has more food. You know, there's never been any serious food shortages in the United mm -hmm. States for maybe more than one winter once. Right. Uh, the year without a summer, which – but even New Englanders, I never heard of anybody starving even then. It's a place that there was plenty to eat. Yeah. It was a place where slave population grew faster than the general population in France or Germany because mm -hmm. there was plenty to eat. Slaves don't normally do that well. Yeah. Slaves are usually treated as treated less well than the average free person. Uh, so in Roman times, that meant since the average free person barely had enough to eat, slaves, you worked them to death. Yeah. Uh, uh, slaves didn't keep up their numbers. In fact, I've heard people said there's only one slave society in all of history that showed population growth among the slaves. That's America. Yeah. One ever. Uh, even in places like Brazil, it did, they didn't get population growth because when you were working on the, the, uh, the sugarcane plantations, they were very rough to people. It, you know, the, the the way they made them work, the tasks were were so severe that uh, people had trouble surviving. Mm -hmm. uh, at any rate, uh, but you know, this is a mystery. I I mean, like in a set, like suppose we find that that losing a woman has measurable DNA that we can look at, and and she really is like an old fashioned person from Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. somewhere. Okay. Well, still, the mystery will, in a sense, be sharpened because then we'll know for sure they were first. Mm -hmm. But we won't have the faintest idea how they got there. No, wait. Uh, again, how do we know they were first? How do we know that the Why Caribbean does it seem likely they were first? Yeah. Because every sample in North or Central America, including current samples and old samples, doesn't have this component. Okay. Oh, speaking of which, uh, you know, they were partly, I think, inspired by this work by Walter Neves, uh, in the Brazilian guy, who had said, I'm seeing these funny looking skeletons. Yeah. But there was something else going on. I hear this from hearsay, but I believe it, which is there were other people as much as 10 years earlier that had done something similar and noticed there was something screwy about these samples from the Brazilian Indians, that they, there was some sort of similarity to you know, the Andaman Islanders, they had examples. People were interested in them for other reasons. There were DNA samples out there. Some mm -hmm. other people saw this, and they were so freaked out. They said, I don't care. It can't be true. I refuse to look at it. It's just too goofy. <laughs> uh, and there were other things like that. When you know, for a, People almost had that reaction when they found this funny tie between northern Europeans and American Indians. Mm -hmm. Oh, I should mention that, too. The American Indians, we now know that, you know, the group that came out of Siberia that went into Beringia. Yeah. We know something about the formation of that group. About 60% of it was uh, people who are kind of similar to the ancient ancestors of Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, mm -hmm. you know, which is not too crazy considering they're in, you know, in a similar part of the world and so forth. Right. But 40% of the ancestry is these ancient North Eurasians. 
that also contributed to the Indo-Europeans and, Nor- and Northern Europeans. Mm-hmm. And that is a, I mean, you know, and, and I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about Indo-Europeans, but there was this shared component between, say, Germans and Aztecs. Although that actually makes a certain sick kind of sense when you think about it. But, uh, anyhow, all right, between, you know, Swedes and, uh, uh, Mayans, there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, and it was a mystery. But it, the only way to explain was there was a group that had contributed to both. There's no other possible way to explain it. And eventually, they, so they projected that such a group must have existed, perhaps somewhere in Siberia, mm-hmm. some members of which had moved west, some had moved east. The eastern group moved earlier, mm-hmm. uh, quite a bit earlier, uh, and then they mixed. And by the way, yet another thing, in both cases, it looks to me like this part, the group, the male ancestry, much of it probably comes from the ancient North Eurasians, the Siberian guys, while the female ancestry comes from another group that they run into. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, uh, because, you know, uh, and now this is something that I was too sensible to understand or to even suspect because you have all these R, uh, Y chromosome lineages in the Indo-Europeans, the most famous of which are R1A and R1B. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people have this. Mm-hmm. Well, but the, the cystier lineages to these are Y chromosome lineages are Q lineages. And that's what all the American Indians have. Mm-hmm. And if, if you go back 25,000 years into Siberia, you probably, you can kind of see that these guys, you know, distant, you know, some, a group, some members of which, uh, moved, somehow picked up a bunch of women. From this proto-Chinese group, proto-Korean group, and then moved on to North America, and then mm-hmm. others went west, picked up some women from somewhere in the Caucasus, mm-hmm. and then spread and became the Indo-Europeans. Uh, so, by the way, there were some physical anthropologists who had suspected some kind of link between American Indians and uh, and uh, and Indo-Europeans. I had not heard of it. It was stuff written. You know, back before World War II, probably. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I had not heard of it until after we'd already found this other connection. But there were other people who were suspecting it. Uh, and there, and Greenberg thinks there's a distant connection between the languages. Mm-hmm. He thought that that the the Amerindian family of languages, the one that contains almost all the Indian languages and must be very old, mm-hmm. he thinks it is a distant relative of Indo-European. Uh, who knows? I don't know. Uh, but I can say that whenever we found a way to check what Greenberg said, it's apparently been right every single time, which is, I mean, I would have loved to meet the guy. Uh, uh, I should have made an effort 20 years ago or something, but he, he sounds like a very interesting person. Uh, but, uh, any rate, so, uh, there, you know, so there are interesting, Oh, oh, one other little thing. You know, mitochondrial lineages. Most mm-hmm. of the mitochondrial lineages that you see in American Indians look kind of like normal Northeast Asian ones. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there is one which does not. It's this X lineage. People, X2 lineage. People have actually talked about it for years. The only other place you, you find a little in Siberia, but you find some in Europe of mm-hmm. this one X2 lineage. Mm-hmm. What this probably means is that 
the ancestors, you know, the group that went both, some went west, some went east. Mm -hmm. They had a little bit of some ancestral mitochondrial lineage, some of which ended up in American Indians, some of which ended up in Hungarians uh, and other people. And it's not real common in either place. It's like only a couple of percent, but it's there. And people had marveled at it. It's that, and the thing is, when you look at things from either the Y chromosome or mitochondria, uh, effective population sizes are smaller. Only women carry uh, the mitochondria, and they only have one copy. So the effective population size is four times smaller. The mm -hmm. same is true for the Y chromosome. Because of that, random shit happens more often. You know, like sometimes the lesson you're trying to learn from it is you are trying to read the words in the clouds. You know, it's random things that may look meaningful, but they aren't always. So I used to have a rule. If people start writing elaborate theories, which are driven by information involving only mitochondria or only Y chromosomes, don't even read it. <laughs> But I was wrong. Some of it was real. But I was trying to be conservative. Uh, the, uh, there, there really was a connection between Europe and the American Indians. They're apparently really, oh, by the way, there are also, there's a linguist. Uh, I think her name is Johanna Nichols. She had, like, one thing you can sometimes have happen is even if languages aren't related, you see, there can be similarities because they kind of borrow things. You know, if they're close together physically, mm -hmm. uh, like, there are, uh, you know, there are languages that are basically Bantu languages among groups in South Africa, but they have a few clicks in them, mm -hmm. like the Zosa, which if I said properly would have a click in Zosa. Uh, they've been influenced by the, uh, by the Bushman languages. And mm -hmm. there are other things like that where languages, they may share certain features even if one is not really descended from the other. Right. So this yeah. this lady thought there was a, a a lot of odd features in the Brazilian Indian languages that reminded her of things in Southeast Asia. And she wrote this uh -huh. years before they found any of the genetic connection. Uh -huh. And I think she was generally considered nuts, but I'm not so sure that she is nuts. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so uh, you know, there's all kinds of old dismissed ideas which have ended up. Say, well, there was a simpler thing to do. Just admit they were right. Uh, yeah. So there were guys who were – there's a guy named Theo Veneman who thought that uh, there were signs in terms of place names. You know, place names can be hints about the language a long time ago. Mm -hmm. That there were – people must have spoken a language related to Basque in much of Western Europe at one distant time. Mm -hmm. And now since we know there was this wave of farmers that spread all over Europe before the Indo-Europeans. Right, they spoke right. some language. Uh and the place which is probably the purest example of them today are the Sardinians. Yeah. But there's indications from place names that people used in Sardinia used to speak a language related to Basque. Yeah. You know, all, uh, you know, so, you know, a good fraction of the ideas that people had dismissed as crazy all fit together and are apparently quite possibly correct. Uh, Theo Veneman was usually considered to be a nut. He may be right. Uh, Greenberg was considered to be a sloppy or crazy or a nut. He looks to be right all the time. Uh, uh, I don't remember the names of those physical anthropologists who had, uh, and, and I still wonder what are the features that would hint to you that American Indians might be related to Europeans? The only thing that occurs to me is basically your sort of, your Roman nose, you know, your sort of prominent nose. Not mm -hmm. many people have that. Chinese mm -hmm. don't have it. Africans don't have it. 
Australian Aborigines don't have it. Uh, the, so, uh, in fact, you know, there were certainly famous members of certain famous Indian tribes. Like there was a, a Sioux chief called, uh, what was he, Cheyenne, called Roman Nose. Mm-hmm. You know, the guys you see on the old nickels. Yeah. I mean, some of them looked kind of like Europeans in certain features. This may have been more than a coincidence. But I can tell you certain things that, like, later, the Indo-Europeans seem to have been the guys who brought some of the varieties of hair color into the Indo-Europeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some of the ancient North Eurasians are probably the source of that. But but you don't think you see any of that in the American Indians. I don't think you see any blonde or red-headed Indians ever. Mm-hmm. So perhaps, again, the, these the Indian... The, the groups that split off to form the Indians probably split off, split off maybe 10,000 years earlier than the groups that split off to join the uh, Indo-Europeans. Although one thing it does make me suspect is that the ancient North Eurasians like to fight. Why? Be, because, because both American Indians and Indo-Europeans are kind of famous for that. <laughs> well, aren't most humans famous for that? Not as much. Uh, uh, I mean, not to the point where, you know, you're not really a man unless you're going off and killed somebody. I mean, some people are like that, but I think there's a lot of other people who aren't. Uh, I mean, I think there was a reason they called Indians braves. Mm-hmm. They, they called themselves braves. But, I mean, I could be wrong. But uh, uh, we may get to find out. I mean, I'm sure if, you know, that sometime in the next 50 years we will, we will clone See, see, the ancient North Eurasians are a, are a lot. Oh, also, by the way, I was thinking of a couple of other groups that seem to score high levels of this ancient North Eurasians. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some groups in the Caucasus that do. Uh, one of them is called Chechens. You remember them? Yeah, of course. Yeah, well, you they don't get, want to, do you? Yeah. They get Chechens, a lot of trouble. Chechens are, well, they kind of cause trouble in uh, Boston, too. Yeah. Well, remember? Yeah. yeah. Well, there were only a hundred Chechens in the United States. And then we got those, you know, it would be less remarkable if there had been a million Chechens and we had two crazy, crazy bombers. We only had a hundred. Chechens, Chechens in Russia, they're notorious as, you know, they won't quit even when any sane person would. Or like, you know, they tried to secede from, you know, from what was left of, Russia after the Soviet Union was breaking up. Right. The Russians sent an armored division down through the the, the main drag of mm-hmm. uh, of their 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 capital. Mm-hmm. Tiflis was it? Uh, no, I think that's in Georgia. Anyhow, the main drag. And see, most people had gone through Soviet military training. For some reason, everybody in town had anti tank rockets, and they got. <laughs> They got up on these 40-story buildings and were firing them down onto the tops of the tanks, which is the weak spot. Yeah. And these local rebels destroyed an entire Russian armored division. Well, right, we're, we're a bit off topic from <laughs> aren't, aren't we? I think so. But anyhow, yes. Uh, uh, but anyhow, the American Indians, we know something about the group, the, how the group formed that came mm-hmm. out of Siberia and eventually mm-hmm. settled. We have better ideas on how uh, and when this happened. Well, we have uh, one huge mystery still. I would say the big mystery, I mean, there may be some more mysteries, but the mystery that we know of right now that's the most mysterious is there's a mixture of someone else, and how they got there is really 
hard to see. Yeah. Uh, and now the other thing is, see, some people are sensitive about this because if they came first, it means the Indians then largely conquered them, mixing some with them, which, by the way, is kind of the way of the world. That's what everybody does. Although probably not in North America, though, right? Not so. as often, except until, until of course, Europeans came and did exactly that. Yeah. No, okay. but the North American Native Americans, they could say they were the first. It would be the South probably. American Indians. Who probably. Can't, I mean, can't certainly come. somebody was first. I yeah. mean, that's logically inevitable. But probably, yes. Uh, uh, even more so for some very far north. I mean, look, for all I know, there are a few controversial possible sites that might be older. There's some place in Pennsylvania they call, I think, was it Metacroft or something, where people are arguing that it's really old, but nobody can quite prove it. For all I know, these guys got first to South America, and a few of them got up to a few favored places in North America, and then were displaced. Nobody knows, mm -hmm. and nobody can tell. Uh, but I can tell you, it could have been a lot. If there had been a lot, we'd see a lot of artifacts, and we don't. Uh, uh, there's all kinds of things, like you, know, you wander around Europe, and yeah. you will find Neanderthal uh, tools all the time because they were there for hundreds of thousands of years. People used to call them thunderstones mm -hmm. because they nobody quite understood what these you know these stone tools were for or what they meant. But but they're they're not rare. I guarantee you, there, it was not the case that you had somebody living in Americas for a long time before the Indians had spread all over the place because we'd find stuff and we just don't. Uh, so they can't be everywhere. They can't be real numerous. And they can't go back forever. But they could go back a little further than the Indians, and they could have. And so, there's a fair chance that somebody lived in Brazil that was different. That we know. Uh, okay, that's yeah, that's quite interesting. That's very different from the story I was told in high school. Well, we don't. We I thought mean, we knew what what happened. There were a very few people like Walter Neves who had a suspicion that something else had happened. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think in every one of these things, even with this mystery, there were a few people who had correctly read the very, you know, the very weak hints. Mm -hmm. But today, you know, with the genetic information, you know for sure there was this extra ingredient from somewhere. Okay. How, but how it got there, it's a mystery. All right. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Greg. This has been extremely interesting.